Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, freshly thought out of a giant northern Minnesota blizzard, to bring you another episode of Take the Last Bite, a show where we boil up a pot of Midwest nice and toss it into the negative degree temperatures to watch it wisp away into frozen powder. Hopefully, your holiday seasons and winter breaks so far have been restful, enjoyable, and full of all the things that replenish your spoons. Certainly, the holidays, topped with the bleak Midwest winter weather, can be a tricky time of year for queer and trans people, but we are also resourceful, tactful, and creative when it comes to making the most out of complex situations. Our team compiled a really cathartic list of ways to navigate the holidays, especially interactions with family and friends who maybe don't get it or who may be outright dismissive or hostile toward our lived experiences. Some of the highlights of our list, which included a batch of wrong answers, were bring a squirt bottle and spray anyone who misgenders you. This would also work with a Nerf gun. Or compliment your host on how much you love their gender-neutral bathroom. Or better yet, hook your phone up to a Bluetooth speaker and blast the most obnoxious song you can find whenever someone tries to talk about politics. And maybe these aren't wrong answers, but we also offer a few suggestions that are less focused on being petty, which is a totally valid approach I would recommend, and focuses more on ensuring you're taking care of yourself. Some of our Self-care suggestions include maintaining community whenever or however you can. FaceTime, video chat, Discord, group message, whatever works for everyone to feel connected, especially if you're all far apart during the winter holidays. You could also do something ahead of time that will bring you peace of mind, such as listening to a podcast, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, or a playlist that lifts your spirits instead of being anchored in the dread of going to a gathering you're not excited about. Uh, We also recommend identifying someone, such as a sibling or a cousin, or someone that's going to be at that gathering with you, who you can signal to when you need support navigating a situation or need a topic change. We're all doing our best out here, and whatever ways we can commit to prioritizing our own needs and safety during the holidays, the more tools we'll have for future occasions and throughout our lives when it comes to combating intolerance and hateful ideologies. As we wrap up 2022, I'm thrilled to say we'll be doing another batch of small bites for the podcast which are our year-end mini-segments reflecting on lessons and experiences during the calendar year. Uh, This year, I posed the following prompts to our team. What did you do this year that you didn't think was possible for you to do? And who taught you something transformative this year? And what was that lesson? So I also posed these questions to y'all to consider what did you overcome this year? What are you taking into next year? And who played an integral part in getting you to this place? Our Small Bites episode will be the last episode of the season, so watch for that in about two weeks. 
On today's episode, I chat with a dear friend of mine as we backtrack some history of higher education to understand how student loan debt cancellation has become such a key political talking point in the present, as well as looking on to the future to determine what's up next for the battle over affordable college and student debt elimination. Ramiro Sarmiento is the press secretary for Young Invincibles, an organization founded by students with the vision of all young people fully participating in the nation's political process and having the economic opportunity to reach their fullest potential. He does a stunning job of breaking down the stressful, complex conversation about student loan debt cancellation and the history of higher education becoming unaffordable, and I was so pleased to have him on the mic for this conversation. Bundle up and grab a cup of hot chocolate for this episode of Take the Last Bite. Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely gonna talk about Midwest nice. And if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, fam. So l- let's lay the scene here for a second about our, our um, coming into each other's ecosystem. I very distinctly <laughs> remember going on a mandated little walk with you um, in middle of nowhere, Kansas. I don't even remember where we went, but we had both signed up for this very uh, interesting, I'll use the Minnesota version of interesting, um, <laughs> retreat <laughs> called Leadership. Um, and we- Oh my God, there. that's <laughs> Yes. Um, so that was an experience that could take up a whole nother podcast episode, but we connected there and had just a very uh, nice chill moment talking about um, ourselves. And I think from there connected just based on all of the- <sighs> mess and um, magnanimity that was student activism at the University of Kansas. That's how we, that's how we connected. And so now Uh, fast forward, yep, um, we're kind of off doing our respective things, but I very much um, follow you on all the social medias and you're doing some really incredible shit and that's why you're here. Um, Also just because it's been too long, so I'm really happy to be in synchronous space with you right now. Um, So why don't you start off with just introducing yourself, however you interpret that, but also including like, what is your relationship to the Midwest? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. We do go way back. So far back. I, so far back, I, I, it was nice for you to remind mm. everyone about our mandated walk. <laughs> That's how we connect with That's so true. I think we're somewhere in the woods and again, bumfuck, nowhere, Kansas. Yes. And, uh, but I'm glad it happened because I got mm, connected exactly. with you, a great human being. So I'm from, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Kansas. Uh, I'm Mexican. I grew up in part in uh, Northern Mexico as part of my upbringing. But most of my life has been uh, 
in Kansas. I over half of my life has been lived in that state. And so that has shaped my perspective, both in the country and then just as it relates to my own issues, the identities that I hold. Uh, so definitely that has had a major influence, both in the way that I communicate, you know, Midwestern nice, as we <laughs> referenced it earlier, can get a lot more with honey, but it definitely calls for raising attention to like issues that are very much needing attention uh, in the Midwest in particular. But yeah, so so I grew up there. I went to, I'm original from Wichita. I went to the University of Kansas where I met you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess my name formerly, Juan Ramiro Sarmiento, but I go by Ramiro and uh, you can call me that. Uh, he, him, and I'm 28 years old and I currently still reside, rem- I work remotely and I reside in Lawrence while I finished my undergraduate degree which I dropped out as a result of uh, a number of issues during the Trump administration, just Mm. how it became to live and exist. That was part of the reason why I dropped out. And so now I'm back trying to finish this, but, and we'll dive a little bit deeper into like having debt and no degree, which is almost 40% of all people that have debt, student debt do not have a degree. So, So we can dive in on that a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, that's essentially where I come from. Not born and raised, but essentially definitely raised in the Midwest. <laughs> um, I appreciate that like backstory and just that the the point of your backstory having so much to do um, with with the work that you currently do now. I feel like I always um, have known you as someone who's just very close like physically close and in proximity of like where important policy stuff is happening you had a stint um in uh you know kansas city um being very close to the mayor's office like you're just always someone who's like you did that at kansas too with students like you were always some like wherever conversations around like big major policy change is happening like ramiro's gonna be there like there's no question <laughs> so just like even though you're just hanging out in little old lawrence kansas college town just like your your where where major change activity is happening um and that just seems to be so very true still in this moment where um it seems like you had like i i don't know the timeline um but you you know we're posting clips of you know you're on msnbc you're on major like latinx like news platforms corresponding you know specifically around student debt cancellation right and that um there's some major talking points that i think part of your current role with your uh your organization but just like generally i've seen your narrative being kind of what has been the the key piece that you're bringing to some of those big media correspondence pieces. Um, And so I think um, knowing your background and knowing your relationship with the Midwest and knowing some of the other like social identities you hold, you know, you're not just someone who like factually knows the importance of student debt cancellation. You're someone who anecdotally, materially, and like holistically knows the importance of student debt cancellation so I just uh just so so happy to have you like here to be the person to kind of create connections between you know how does this materially affect people um so I'm hoping you can kind of help me you know lay out a comprehensible landscape of kind of like where where did 
And how did the big talking point of student debt cancellation kind of emerge, right? Like I think in the past, let's put a two or three year marker on it, maybe ish. I feel like that's really been a bigger deal than it ever has, but let's, let's flesh that out. And then, you know, why is it such a hot topic in this moment? Um, and what have been some of the key moves in maybe the past six months to a year that are moving us in a direction towards the ultimate goal of student debt cancellation, right? Like what is, what is the landscape and what is some of the context so that we kind of have a foundation to go off of as we talk about the impacts on certain populations? Absolutely. So I guess just to give, give even further background mm-hmm. on, on my own sure. work, so I've primarily worked in policy and communication spaces after mm-hmm. live, leaving the University of Kansas. So I, like you mentioned, I worked for the mayor there as, as policy on local policy um, advising. Then I, before that, I worked at the Democratic National Convention Committee doing press work at the national level. I worked on Congress and now I work for this advocacy organization called Young Invincibles, which does advocacy for young adults 18 to 34, focused on our economic prospects, ensuring that we're getting the money that we should be getting, whether that's through tax returns or that policies are working for us, that um, the minimum wage is raised or that childcare is an option. We primarily focus on four issues. That's higher education, which is how we got involved with student debt and I'll dive into the context of that. Then we have healthcare, um, access access and affordability. That's still today, like healthcare is attached to your employment and that can be a a big uh, issue for people um, for a multitude of reasons. Then we have civic engagement. So voting, uh, voting rights and democracy, which is really important these days or at least at the forefront of issues that we're discussing. And then we have the economy and workforce development. So those are essentially what we focus with a lens of like young adults. What is, how does this work for young adults? So I'm one, I'm very fortunate that I came across Young Invincibles and got to work with them uh, on works that align with my own beliefs and the own issues that I face in my life that doesn't happen often that's rare and I'm very happy and fortunate that I get to work with them I'm the press secretary right now so I manage a lot of the messaging and communications around all of those issues that I mentioned um, Mm -hmm. at a national level and when it comes to student debt I mean the issue has been around people have had to pay for college for years for Mm -hmm. decades um, it used to not be that way. College has exploded exponentially, exponentially in terms of the tuition costs. And there are a number of reasons for why that is, but college used to be uh, free back in the 20th century. Um, but after segregation and um, people of color and more marginalized communities, particularly Black folks in this country, were allowed to attend um higher education institutions and you saw a wave of simple refusal to allow them to enter campus for Mm -hmm. class Um, that movement eventually got codified into uh, making higher education more expensive Mm -hmm. so that only people that could afford it uh, could actually enter so the barriers to maintain people that had been uh, redlined into poverty and concentrated into racialized areas of poverty around this country 
the new barriers that were being set up since uh, segregation was no longer legal, uh, where other uh, items that were based on monetary uh, barriers. And so they took away, university became more expensive. They took mm -hmm. away, uh, you had the Reagan administration coming in <laughs> and, and uh, pushing this thinking of uh, lifting yourself up, all up by your bootstraps, which is essentially something that has been thoroughly deconstructed and dismissed in, in our current era for obvious reasons in the discourse that's happening today in the country, uh, which we rightly realize now is incorrect uh, because it's not fair. The world isn't fair. Things aren't uh, just and equal. And equal people have a legacy of discrimination and um, barriers to overcome, which is why we have such huge gaps in wealth inequality and, and access to education and, and healthcare and jobs. You can just look at any sector of the economy and you see those disparities very much present because they're the legacy of, of those discriminatory laws that we used to have. So now if we back for, if we uh, step back a little bit to talk about the rising cost of college through the 20th century and you fast forward to today, what we've seen is that the state funding that used to be there uh, is no longer there. A, a lot of that higher education was defunded during the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. And the Reagan administration did defund a lot of that higher education as well, turning many grants into loans, essentially creating mm -hmm. what we now have as like student aid in the form of uh, parent plus loans, individual subsidized and unsubsidized loans. All of those structures emanated from that period. And so now you've had a system that had been introduced, designed as a barrier so less folks would access higher education and not equally just any folks, but people that were formerly not allowed to access it. So that's one aspect. Mm. Um, and then universities, colleges and universities did not keep up with the budgetary hole that was created when the federal and the state uh, entities began to defund the, what they formally gave to higher education to keep it at such a low cost, which mm -hmm. is why people used to say, oh, I could keep a high school job or a, a job that I got with a high school degree and pay my way through college. That's what they reference. That's what they mean. The college was so affordable then that you were able to do this. Yes, there's inflation, but inflation doesn't account for the fact that college has been systematically rearranged so that it costs money for you to go um, and if you just take back, step back, taking that into consideration, how messed up is that? But now, uh, because of some decisions some folks made in the 20th century, now you have to keep three jobs and you're still like, like struggling to pay for like maybe 12 credit hours, or you can't even afford college altogether because you can't afford the cost of living that is exploding right now. But then you also have to contend with like the legacy of like essentially racist policies. So it's fucked up all around. And uh, so that's the situation. That's why college is so expensive. Now, well, people still had to attend college. So they took out loans, like many of us were told to, to go to college. We're told to go to college. But uh, if you didn't have financial support from your parents or were wealthy, you had to get loans unless you had fortunate enough to have had an upbringing that fostered an environment where you could get scholarships and had the ability to study and focus and get a good ACT score mm -hmm. because you didn't have to worry about 
your light, your electricity being on while you studied. And sometimes you did and you were exceptional and overcame that, but you shouldn't have to be exceptional just to have access to higher education. Um, so that's why um, the issue started really gaining track about 10 years ago with um, the student center, the student borrower protection center and the student debt crisis center. Those were entities that were created back then um, about 10 years ago because they recognized that that was such a huge issue that they needed a dedicated organization to fight for this. Now, it didn't have as much traction. It wasn't discussed broadly in the way that you have it today. Uh, what really set that issue in motion from, like, from the spaces in which this was really important to them uh, to now like at the forefront of the conversation in the news, everywhere you go, uh, essentially a headline issue the reason why that happened was because of the pandemic. And that's a lot of the rationale from the administration. It is that because of everything that has transpired, the inequities that were highlighted during the pandemic and then exacerbated as a result of the economic downturn and the over 1 million deaths that we had in the country initially because of the mismanagement and then second, because of a runaway effect and being able to control a global pandemic, um, that is a lot of the rationale behind the administration uh, at the courts and publicly with other organizations that are youth advocacy and higher education advocacy are the crux of our argument has been because of the pandemic and the damage that it has brought on not only the global economy, but here at home uh, and just across all sectors of life, we need to cancel student debt. Uh, because people's pockets have just been decimated. And now we can't really deny that there's problems of inequity when the pandemic just made it so obvious across the board. Uh, so that's why we have this moment that the, the movement that has been carried for years by single issue organizations primarily focused on cancellation have banded together with the rest of the coalition, which are essentially any and all organizations that care about higher education or that prioritize issues of young adult for, for young adults. And not all students are young adults, not all, but that's that's an issue that's overwhelmingly represented in that space. And so it is pushed by that. But their their non-traditional students are older, of course, that have that. There's parents that have that. That, are, that their children are now in college and they are also taking out debt. So you have generational debt in this country uh, instead of wealth, which should be built, being built. But that's um, essentially how we got to the spot where now everybody's talking about student debt is because we created a movement uh, in concert with the folks that had already been doing the work and we reached the point of critical mass where we were able to coordinate folks and get them all to say this, to sing the same song. And we got an administration that was open to doing this. Um, it's only fair to say that the Trump administration did initiate the pause, but um, in comparison to the horrid items that came out of that administration, it's like really hard to give anybody credit in there, but it did start at the Trump administration and it has been continued. And then cancellation happened under Biden, who was heavily pressured during his campaign. Um, and yeah, it was all hands of deck. 
and, and that's that's why we're here. I think that context is super helpful and like if you ask anybody who does any kind of work in alignment with me like I love adding context to things because I, I think I had joked slash not joked with you before we hit the record button that um, you know I think uh, a lot of credit is given to Elizabeth Warren during like the presidential like campaigning um, who was someone to and probably Bernie Sanders as well as two folks who were kind of naming that as part of their their platform issues during that presidential campaign um, but that it if you look you know past the smoke and mirrors of two key you know political uh, candidates that there's folks on the ground who've been doing major work which is usually the case with any kind of major movement stuff that improves this folks's material conditions so I think that in a lot of the history you just named like I was super not even aware of in this moment um so I think just like naming that like this has been a long time coming and that a lot of the systems in place right financial aid you know higher education funding the the removal of funding right like that's all compounding and creating the squeeze that with the addition of the pandemic has just made it kind of fall out from underneath itself and reveal that certain systems for funding folks to go to college were not sustainable, right? Like the amounts of loans, you know, that's a major talking point, right? Is that like the loans that 18 year olds are taking out to go to college is like predatory and just astronomical and would not be fathomable in a case where they were trying to take out a loan for a house or a car or literally anything else. Like we would not receive the kind of money we receive um, for any other circumstance, but it's apparently totally fine because of this continued false narrative that well, going to school means you're going to get a return on the debt you take out now but as we're seeing you know wages are not increasing to then match the promise of going to college um so then you've got folks who you know college students are generally taking out more debt but then also working multiple jobs um i think a larger i think i saw a stat recently that a larger percentage of folks currently enrolled in college are parents so then you've got the additional cost of child you know child rearing and child care there's all these additional costs so the cost of life is increasing um and the money coming into the person living that life is not <laughs> no it's very true it um it's so hard college is hard already but if you have any other additional identities or responsibilities it just becomes even more difficult to where other problems in society and the economy are brought into the conversation because they haven't been fixed. Mm -hmm. um, so like childcare, for example, or like mental health services on campus, mm -hmm. like mass. So if you have any sort of issues there, you're also going to deal in there. So has to come across that system. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to go back to talk about <clears throat> Warren and mm -hmm. Sanders. It's like, uh, I think the reason why it was so salient uh, as an issue and it seemed like it came from them is because they were the ones that paid attention to people um, like the grass grassroots and on the ground and were like what's an issue that's important to you what are people like organizing around they recognized and their campaigns recognized early on that that was an issue that was like very much uh being discussed on the ground and so they elevated that and I think to also benefit to highlight that had it not been for candidates like that that infused that into the national conversation at a moment of like a presidential election um that would not have advanced the issue in the way that it that it has arrived now i think it all is like little stones that help it get bigger mm -hmm. uh, but i don't think without like bernie or warren elevating that into the debate stage uh it would have taken like longer that makes um, sense. 
Yeah, so it it definitely and then that that then pushed President Biden to make a promise sure. that we utilized a lot to during before pre-cancellation plan announcement. We were railing on the president about the fact that he made a promise to cancel some debt. He said 10,000, perhaps more, but there was a moment there where us getting an extension on the pause, repayment pause, was like what we thought we were only going to get. We, we were thinking the president was going to cancel, cancel like any debt at all, even though he promised. That was a real possibility. And had it not been for that applied pressure from the grassroots uh, all around, uh, whether it be on TV or behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Had we stayed quiet, he would have not, he would have gleefully just left it alone and not <laughs> have to deal with lawsuits that are now ongoing. True. Well, because at this point, the, the repayment pause has been extended how many times? Are we up to like five or six times? I lost I track. Think I think we're at eight. Damn. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, but it's, yeah. it also begs the question is like, if you you haven't gotten this money in a long time, exactly. you actually need it. And mm-hmm. you should, that also brings up another like question from principle. It's like, should the federal government be making money on the backs of like mm. students? And who are those students? Primarily students of low income that aren't getting loans in the first place because they don't have money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something else that that's something we're gearing up for. Uh, as this fight continues in terms of higher education and making it more accessible, one of those is going to have to be a conversation around interest because interest is crazy and mm-hmm. it's just money, extra money that the government is making on the mm-hmm. backs. And so it's not just cancellation, it's also interest sure. and the supports that they provide. Uh, but yeah, we can we can go around all day, uh, but I'll I'll stop there for so as so you can direct the conversation. I'm sensing a spinoff podcast where maybe I just oh, check sure. in with you every once in a while about the status of higher education, and we'll just talk that to death because that feels really <laughs> cathartic. Um, because yes, to everything you're freaking saying, because just that's where we're at. Um, Oh, yes. Um, on the backs of students just feels like a really um, key uh, note from that, that bit for sure. Um, and which students, uh, which I feel like was a big piece of what I wanted to chat about with you too, is just thinking about, um, you know, I, I could rattle off the data and I won't because I can't retain numbers like that, but I'll put it in the show notes later. But just like looking, looking at what I've done research and homework on, even if I didn't do the homework, that none of this is surprising and I could make this as an educated guess, right? We generally know that queer and trans students um, or queer, queer and trans borrowers, um, especially queer and trans uh, borrowers of color, um, have a disproportionate debt um, burden, right? Generally thousands, maybe tens of thousands more dollars in debt, um, which tying that with other compounding factors that we can generally find, you know, data to cite for about how um, more complex and how much more difficult it is for marginalized students, especially to persevere is the word I'm sure uh, the higher ed elites would want me to use through college, um, that they're going to be going to school for a longer amount of time. And they may also have life factors that, you know, 
I feel like you can literally speak personally to because you mentioned it, um, may impact their their ability to maintain through college to a degree um, or having to take you know, a gap semester or a gap year for a variety of reasons. We know that students of color generally have more family responsibilities that's going to impact their ability to um, commit uh, as the same amount of attention and uh, work in their coursework as their white counterparts. Um, thinking about money, right? There's there's narratives of students taking out loans to then give that money back to family because it's the first time in their life they've had access to that kind of money um, as a low you know low SES uh, person, right? There's all these factors, all these factors um, that then impact marginalized communities um, in such a way. And so I just, I'm kind of wanting to go down this pathway of just thinking about like with broad-based student loan cancellation and everything that we know about all these other compounding factors through COVID, right? Like what, you know, what does it mean? And what are, <laughs> it feels like such an obvious answer. What is the value of canceling student debt for marginalized populations? The answer is obvious, but just like, what is, um, what's the depth of that, right? Like what is the deeply rooted impact of that uh, as we look at it from the perspective of prioritizing and centering, relieving debt for marginalized communities? I think it's a big deal because for many people it's like life and death, right? right. Like think about the reasons why, like <clears throat> you, we don't have, we, you just described the high bar of like attending higher education in this country if you have marginalized um, identities but also if you're queer or trans and um, that just means like uh, your needs are going to be different in college and because college wasn't built for folks that weren't rich and came from really privileged backgrounds where the core identities were those upheld by society in the 20th century, which was heterosexual, straight, white, Christian um, family and anything that centers that, if then college is going to be difficult for you because if, if they're one, you have the social aspects of, and the, the social barriers that come with that um, of all the either discrimination or so socially challenging situations that will come with just riding the bus on campus if you hold any of those idea, um, identities or being in class, which is like, and you're not bothering anyone, you're just trying to get your degree. Mm -hmm. That's one. And then the financial aspect, like it's all paying for school is one thing. Like if you got disowned <clears throat> and you got to college and that's the first time you're coming out or... Mm -hmm you are out and you are in college, you likely don't have that support. And if you still are cool with your parents, they probably, and, and they they don't accept you, you and, you know, all that comes with that, with coming out. And you have a challenge, uh, like if you're still cool with them, they might even be bothered that you're even asking them for money because they're already, like, you're already on thin ice with them potentially, unless you like were blessed with like good parents. But no, I'm serious. So uh, I feel like because once you get there, the barriers are so high that like your mental health, first and foremost, will decline. And there aren't any mental, there are, it's, it's rare when campuses have like proper 
adequately funded and appropriate um, mental health services mm -hmm. that will help you. Um, and it's not like all of those barriers that you faced in the bus, in the theoretical bus or the classroom are going to be any different at the right. campus clinic. Uh, so the, the barriers are high. Uh, you don't have a family potentially to go to. So um, that's just for attending and paying for college to so everyday living of on campus and like needing money. Uh, and then the barriers keeping you from a degree if you don't graduate or if you have uh, housing or food insecurity, which is very common, um, that debt is heavier for folks with uh, that are queer or trans. Mm -hmm. But uh, $20,000, for example, if, if you don't have, if you have that, but you don't have an overwhelming amount, that to you can be life-changing if right. you are a person, because then that could mean that your credit score might go up or mm. that you can focus on other items that are like immediate for survival or just like the general stress. Uh, it could also mean that maybe you can take out, as, as messed up as it sounds, that maybe you can take out loans and finish your degree because you didn't <laughs> you had to drop out. Right. Um, it may it may come as a gift in many different ways. It could extend your, your life in the sense that your degree life, finishing your degree, it could mean that you can finally get access to your transcripts because you haven't paid and college has been withholding hostage. Mm. Your your transcripts, you can even prove that you attended school. There are a number of ways wow. in which schools can, administration at least, can make it very difficult for you to live your life, even if you went to college, if you have debt. So this forgiveness, depending on how much debt you have, for those that have less than 20,000, where this means they no longer have debt, this is life-changing. For those where this is being decreased, whether it's being slashed in half or it takes out a third, it, it makes it more attainable to pay that off and more hopeful for the future that there might be more cancellations down the line that will improve your financial situation. But because, so I guess the point here I'm trying to reiterate is that because the, the everyday living and the barriers to even get there um, and the support that isn't there makes it such heavier debt. And, and therefore the relief is even more relief uh, mm -hmm. both ends are more intense uh and sure. i wish that wasn't the way society works it's just <clears throat> what life has dealt us and so um yeah it would be life-changing for many people i know for me as i just have like uh in terms of my family history i just have a tough economic and immigration like cards that were dealt but like my mom is there for support. Like she didn't disown me. She was just broke. Uh, so like, you know, at least she's there for emotional support. Yeah. But like there are parents that just don't show up at all and they have mm -hmm. money. I would be way more mad if like, but, but not to compare like struggles here. But uh, yeah, but that does happen. Like for some, I have friends that are housing insecure and didn't finish their degree on their last year. And this may mean that they can go back to school. That's mm -hmm. a big deal. 
that means picking up on your life where you left off uh, after like personal disappointment. Um, a lot of the issue here is that because all of this is going on, no one takes the time to, and because there's no appropriate mental health services to like go through the process, go to, yeah, through the process of mm -hmm. processing what has transpired and what has happened mm -hmm. to you. Often, many times, queer and anyone that's going, youth that's going through uh, a hard time or anyone really, they all internalize that failure as if it is definitive of their being or that is a reflection of either their work ethic or their per who they are as a human, per like a person. And that's just like not it. People like uh, for the num for the reasons that we've explained on this podcast, like a lot of those things are exterior is and a lot of the internal stuff is like just us dealing with the exterior mm. circumstances that we find ourselves in because again this is just like the multiverse that we landed in. So uh, yeah, it 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 is tough out here, um, but most of it it is not. Just because you have that or you dropped out doesn't mean that you're any less. Like it's just a it's a personal disappointment. Shit happens, but like you're still of love and support and like at home and a meal, regardless. Um, but yeah, a lot of that a lot of that checks out, and it, you know what I know to be true in working directly with college students, LGBTQ college students specifically in my day job. Right, is that oftentimes the the requests I get of students who are like, I'm in a financially complicated situation. It's not even necessarily that their tuition bill is not covered. They have somehow figured that out and it's probably because of student loans and that's gonna be a kickback later that's gonna suck in a different way. But their immediate moment, right? And the immediate circumstance is I can't pay my rent. I can't purchase groceries. I've got other expenses, right? And there's not always readily available funding. And you know, and certainly I think about this in a really complicated way, like, you don't have access to just kind of getting micro grants in the way that you have access as a college student. And I wish that that was a more um, ubiquitous existence that we lived in where you need the funding. You're not gonna have to go to the like place that's gonna make you spend 99% interest to get it cash forwarded, right? But in college, right, there are circumstances where you might be able to access the money. Um, and that's been the case with a lot of students. I've also been in situations where a student has reached out to kind of inquire about what other types of financial aid might exist because uh, um, their parents have financially cut them off, right? Maybe hasn't straight up said like, we're not gonna associate with you, but we're no longer gonna pay for your college because of your queer identity. But then the response from, you know, the financial aid office or whoever is responding about the request to the student is saying, well, here's some options. And then they just copy over a canned response that also includes, well, you could consider a parent plus loan. It's like, did you hear the part where the parents are no longer financially supporting the student? So just, I think there's also these processes that create extra labor for queer and trans students on campus, marginalized students broadly on campus. Um, that brings me to a point that I definitely wanted to hear more from you about, about this idea of like means-based, like means-based, um, you know, you having to prove that you need the funding in some kind of bleeding heart way that says, here's my horror story of the life that I'm living. Can you please feel sorry for me and give me money? That's how I feel about it anyway. But there's probably a more um, apt answer that you could give, because I know you've spoken on that before, too, about just kind of the the needing to prove the need or needing to prove that you're at a place 
um, that's dire enough to justify um, any kind of forgiveness. And I think that shows up with this recent iteration of the forgiveness that we're seeing is that there's kind of a catch-all of $10,000. And also if you were at any point in time a Pell Grant recipient, which is based on some socioeconomic factors, that you're eligible for $20,000 um, in forgiveness, right? So then there's, a, there's already within this most recent wave of cancellation that we're seeing, the the difference between do you really need this versus oh you truly need this and that that's going to maybe make things more complicated too I don't know what do you think I think no I agree in the sense that the, the way things are traditionally structured in, in higher education when it's when it's time to ask for any sort of money because mm -hmm. like you basically have to uh, put out your horror story out there and hope that they will give you money right. It's dehumanizing. It's re-traumatizing for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. You really need to figure out a different way of uh, learning about people's experience without having them go through such a bad experience again. And then, but I think two things. I first, I think it really draws attention to the fact that there is a gap of need uh, when it comes to like financial resources uh especially emergency financial resources for young adults in this country that that needs to be filled um if you that that, that there is a direct government response that exists and that is required and that we should push for which is uh the availability of as you mentioned micro loans for anybody uh through uh, an economic process similar to the one that you would go through, uh, ideally more simplified, uh, but not one that is under the structures of like admissions to colleges where you have to write an essay about everything that happened to you, but rather about like bring your bill that you can't pay or mm. bring like a pay stub or just fill out this form. But there, there aren't institutions that do that right now, or at least that still do it. And so you're only left with options such as predatory lenders like speedy cash, cash loans, what have you, this like payday lenders yeah. that are strategically placed. Uh, I mean, there are rules behind that. There's zoning that allows for particular businesses to be placed in particular locations, and there is a higher concentration of payday lenders in low-income areas, racialized, racialized areas, mm -hmm. or like near college campuses like that, um, where they there is this environment that there are no options available, but so interesting how there's like five payday lenders all around. How come those are the only options? And there are plenty of those, and you can pick and choose. That's by design. There's zoning laws that go into that, um then there is like federal policy that goes into that that creates this void that is being filled by predatory lenders right. and so that's a gap and a shortcoming and something we should demand and something we're working on on the longer term mm -hmm. at white municipals which is to restructure that balance one of to talk about some of the people that are leading the way in the senate that have listened to the grassroots, but also analyzed this in-house, people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, 
they're talking about the post the postal office becoming uh, doubling as a bank because mm-hmm. there's a postal office uh, that is a source of jobs for local communities where they are placed. Like they're a good model. Um, they're not for profit. And if we were able to retrofit them through legislation to then provide microloans at low interest rates, then you would have a scenario where, uh, say, for example, a queer college student on campus needs a loan and they don't have to get essentially a rabbit hole of a loan in a payday lender that will then further get them depressed because they're now stuck with this loan. On top of all of this stuff, they creates another problem and more stress mm-hmm. um, that it becomes not just like a barrier, but an actual like dragging you down financially, mm-hmm. um, which is so messed up that we allow it to happen. So that's one aspect um, that needs to be addressed uh, because just the way it's set up is so messed up. And it's by design to make people money mm-hmm. or people that are elected that take money from predatory lenders that will not advance legislation of this kind, which is why we need cleaner government, which brings us to civic engagement. But that's another conversation we can have. Now, when we're talking about means testing, <clears throat> one of our biggest concerns had been a really long application where people were having to submit documents and all this stuff. And we know that already by design people are busy people are depressed they have to go to work they don't have the time to just be looking for another document uh and they know that which is why when there's necessity attached to it oftentimes it's to water down the amount of people that they're going to help so we really pushed hard for something that wasn't asking for any of that that was as automatic as possible we were asking at young invincibles for 50k and forgiveness no necessity just let it be automatic that's not what we got we got 10 to 20k and we got means testing measure but it was better than we thought so the application itself i think we had like 40 million people sign up within like the first three weeks of the opening of the application because it was a simple it in my experience it's one of the most simple uh applications i have seen which is just like what's your name like i think it was like six questions and then you submitted and then you were in the system it was almost Uh, like mistrustingly simple <laughs> like yeah. am i on the right website like did i get hacked sure. yes <laughs> yeah. uh, no it's so true uh but that was like essentially the compromise it's like sure. a form but like something more water something more simple sure. but then of course we can't have good things so then now we have the lawsuits uh so it it's being testing will always leave people out because of the real life situations that people have uh just like in the same way reimbursement that a job might like have some drop off because like who wants to simply take it uh but they make you do extra work so you don't take that money from them so it's it's the same concept uh but yeah at least at least where we are right now if you didn't sign up if you weren't one of those 40 million that filled out the application it'll uh we'll we'll have to wait to see what happens with the lawsuits uh it's basically on pause right now we have a repayment pause as well so you shouldn't be paying student payments right now student loan payments right now if somebody comes to you asking you hey it's time to pay your student loans it's a scam Sure. Um, you're getting any communications from the from quote unquote like your servicer make sure it is in fact like coming from a dot gov dot gov mm-hmm. domain uh and and not some sort of third party that's trying to take your money 
um, things like that, because scammers sure. will take advantage of the confusion during this period. But we're essentially just waiting to see mm -hmm. uh, what the courts are going to say. Um, the coalition is organizing to, to essentially make the case in public opinion that uh, why we're doing this, why it's urgent to have uh, relief, not only because it's a huge problem, but because of the pandemic. And then the fact that there are predator, predatory like lenders out here um, and scammers that are trying to take advantage of students. So we're having oral arguments here in January at the Supreme Court. Uh, that'll be a press push and a digital push from the grassroots folks. And then uh, the decisions will be handed out sometime in June. So sure. we have between now and June to essentially <clears throat> raise attention to the issue and then hope that we'll get a good result at the Supreme Court and that'll be determined. <laughs> if not, then we'll have to find out other ways to pressure the president to do something about the fact that all of these issues are still very much live. Mm -hmm. And what is, what is the basis in a nutshell of the lawsuit, right? Like what is the opposition's big deal for, for pushing the lawsuit to say that the debt cannot be, should not be forgiven? So there are a number, there were a number of arguments that were raised, okay. essentially throwing, throwing pasta at the wall to see what sticks. Um, <laughs> Typical and, tactic. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that, that's a lot of what you saw at the beginning where you had yes. like five different lawsuits across a number of states. The vast majority, if not all of them, were initiated by Republican elected officials uh, that are attorney general in those states that banded mm -hmm. together. Um, there has been the inclination from the beginning to frame this and create this narrative that this is helping the wealthiest people and that we shouldn't be paying for people's basket weaving degrees. So there's this misinformation campaign that's originating from the same politically motivated actors that are essentially just trying to keep this from happening either because they don't like the president and they see this as a victory for him or because they are in paid and funded by the interests that would not benefit from this because there are people that won't benefit financially from from cancellation that would be the student the student loan debt uh, lenders um, that oversee your debt that get a cut <clears throat> from those payments they're not very happy but why are you in the business okay first of all you're in the business of making money off of people in debt uh, in a capitalist system that is exploiting folks and and so be mad, stay mad, like that you're not making money uh, from people. That's some of the lawsuits of people sure. that are legitimately claiming you're costing me money, even as nakedly horrible as that is for you to get up in court and be like, all these people are getting forgiveness and relief at a time that they need it, but ah, they're messing with my money. Mm. So that's some lawsuits. Mm. But then it's so interesting because some of those same folks got PPP loans to that then were also forgiven and the ppp loans were astronomical some people got like over a million dollars mm. several were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars <clears throat> to the wealthiest in our country because for you to get a ppp loan you had to have been a business owner so you already had to have had some sort of money money or you are secured in your life now 10k 20k and they're crying about that it's just so messed up all around 
so that's some of the lawsuits are politically motivated. They don't want to give the president a win. There, some of them have legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate but fucked up claims as to why they're losing money based on this. And then other ones just straight up uh, don't want to give people like they're just not motivated by mm. whatever that's between them and their deity. But like, ah, <laughs> uh, they're clearly very much like not happy about people getting relief that they need. And so a lot of these where a lot of these lawsuits early on were tossed out by the judges because they're like you have no claim you're just complaining mm. uh, <laughs> other ones that did and got elevated to the supreme court will be decided and it's scary because the supreme court has a super majority for conservatives but we don't necessarily know how they will vote on this particular issue because it's not this issue hasn't been around in the same way that like abortion uh has been around or other constitutional questions sure. so there might be more of a gray area we might get a surprise uh so we'll see uh it's not like universally dismissed as a loss because the facts of the case could be such that the supreme court justices might side with us mm -hmm. uh because some of them are just so outrageous in their claims mm -hmm. also because the president does have the authority as it's written in law to to make these sort of mm. budgetary decisions they're of a greater number which i think is what they're arguing but the government works with big, big numbers all the time mm. so it's it's like splitting hairs so we'll see how this aligns with us we will be making the case so that all of these justices are reading these reports and they're seeing the people organized so that they can think twice. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we just we just do not know at this time. Um, which I think uh, sounds par for the course, just kind of a lot of, of wonder. Um, and um, two things, right? I think uh, that helps contextualize, right? Like the date for the most recent pushback of the repayment pause being seemingly along the timeline of when these, um, when the, yeah, um, yes, 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 <laughs> words are hard. Uh, the lawsuits would be playing out and just kind of waiting it out to see what the outcomes of that all will be. So that makes sense for when um, the new date for repayment pause has happened. Um, and then what I'm also, you know, thinking about as far as some of the, the just, outrageous like talking points that the opposition has you know not even elected officials but the average person you know you can pull up any twitter thread where student loan debt cancellation is a topic and there's going to be 15 people trolling about well what about my mortgage or you know what about you know my other debt the other types of debt that are out there and i'm thinking about this um i don't know if they're necessarily like an organization per se but i don't are you familiar with uh the debt collective yes yeah so they they've done that's definitely one of the kind of factions of grassroots work i know they've organized several types of protests in dc there's um a, a book that was published through i can't remember off the top of my head now if it was haymarket or verso but it, it kind of maps out um this idea that being a borrower, right, being a someone who's in debt, being a borrower and someone who has taken out massive loans is kind of this shared identity or shared experience of a lot of people, whether it's student loan debt, medical debt, or other types of predatory debt, because 
any any instance in which we, based on everything we just talked about, where folks need money, right? You have all of these, you know, payday loan type places with massive interest rates. There's there's so much possibility, credit card debt, right? There's so much possibility for folks to have astronomical debt because of economic circumstances. And what I what I'm thinking of when the, the debt collective is kind of mapped out this idea that that is a place to mobilize and activate around, right? Our shared burden of predatory debt and how it is unsustainable and how, you know, it shouldn't be that you have to take out massive amounts of debt of any kind to make ends meet and to have your material needs met. That is a place, you know, for activism and direct action and movement um, and how a lot of that protest work, I think, has also, you know, in combination with certain types of uh, political lobbying tactics or really being in the ear of elected officials, all of this, all of these are tools and tactics to kind of get, you know, this dialectical relationship between policymakers and decision makers um, with folks who are existing in, you know, their average daily lives and are not having their material needs met, you know, thinking about how powerful it could be probably wouldn't go very far, but how powerful it could be to respond to someone who says, well, what about my mortgage? To be able to say, you're actually right. Like if your you know, if your interest rate on your mortgage is actually like tearing you apart financially because you don't have a job that's paying you a living wage to be able to pay your mortgage, like actually we should be in mutual conversation to talk about the fact that we're both screwed. But it's, it, it's been so um, segmented in, well, why would you get, you know, your debt canceled but I'm gonna be sitting here with my debt, right? There's certain circumstances where I think like, how, how can the narrative continue to expand where we can say, yep, if you have an obscene amount of medical debt because our medical industrial like complex and our medical systems are also screwing people over because that system is unsustainable, then we should actually be in tandem conversation. It's not a this or that, but I don't think that that's where the conversation has advanced, probably to your point, because this is a relatively infant conversation compared to certain decades long movement work, but like it's technically all one conversation. And I don't, I'm curious what it's gonna take to kind of get, you know, there's certain people you're never gonna convince, but like, how can this be a conversation around, you know, there's talking points that relate to broad-based student debt cancellation that will carry over and should carry over into conversations around credit card debt and medical debt and any kind of debt that like shouldn't actually have been accrued because people should have had their needs met and things like food and shelter paid for instead of having to swipe a credit card with an astronomical um, interest rate. You hit the nail on the head in terms of how can Oh, you, you were you were illustrating how we uh, posing a question as to how we can basically continue this momentum going yeah. uh, and expand it uh, to create a more powerful like movement. And I think that is so true in terms of organizing. Like that really is where all of these things come from. When I when I posed a question of this, or when when yeah, when I when I was asking the question of and uh, saying that there were the predatory lenders, for example, were a um, an area, a gap that needed to be filled by good government policy. That doesn't happen unless there's organizing around that, right. unless there's um, pressure being exerted to the people that might run for that position. Or if you're in that movement 
and you you feel like you have a chance you should run um and make that case so that then mm-hmm. even if you lose you make the person that stays behind think twice or think and know that that's an issue that is important to the community um right now one of and something that we are seeing um so interesting that you mentioned that as a, like a sort of a carryover is a now renewed focus on medical debt. Mm. Um, the Kaiser Health News um, organization, which is just like a nonprofit arm of um, Kaiser Health that, that focuses on just healthcare news, mm. they've been doing a series, the reporters that work there have been doing a series on medical debt and how the holders of medical debt are actually people that are under their um, in their 30s or mm. under their 30s. Uh, a lot of like young people that get debt because they didn't have insurance because they thought they were healthy, uh, which is, you know, or because it's really expensive. Um, and they have that debt with a hospital and then it stays with them well into their adulthood and how that can impact a number of situations. But their perceived assumption is that medical debt is just with older folks that have like really chronic this, uh, diseases or conditions that allow, like force them to take, to buy really expensive medicine, which mm-hmm. is a certain portion of it. But a lot of it is just young people that like broke a leg or mm-hmm. had, uh, um, an interaction with the healthcare system. And because those costs are astronomical, mm-hmm a lot of that is there so we do see that slowly mm-hmm. shifting into that as this conversation is still going on like that now we're paying attention to other what other type of debt in our community is kind of like unfair but you're absolutely right all <laughs> kinds of, all kinds of debt under and that would be a cross-sectional area for like solidarity and movement building uh because you do get more with honey so if we do respond to a troll with no you're right let you're me buy right. it because they're true now join us in this fight so that we can also help you with your mortgage. That's so true. That That is more powerful. Right. If I'm it's a landlord that. saying that their mortgage is too high and you're um, jacking up the rent for your tenants, I'm going to be less enthusiastic about saying you're right. But if someone who Absolutely. owns a house, but also yes. does not have the means, like then yes, like we can have that conversation about, you know, predatory loans. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what the loan is <laughs> like if you can't afford yes. to live then we're actually on the same page but you let's fight about it i guess <laughs> I agree. no and i think the, those conversations will continue to evolve um to certainly like in the spaces that i'm in and um but that is it is good to to have these conversations with everybody across the country because that's how ideas uh bubble up mm-hmm. um so i'm really glad we had this conversation mm-hmm. i will be taking that over <laughs> <laughs> so so you kind of gave a preview already of what we're what's up in the next about six months or so so we're gonna see this lawsuit play out and we're gonna hear all kinds of talking points and it's gonna be a, a political frenzy that's gonna happen for sure um as far as either you know, continued advocacy work, different types of initiatives, what, you know, ultimately just kind of to funnel us towards a a wrap up, you know, what is next in terms of broad-based student loan cancellation? Um, And what are any other final thoughts you have to really kind of take us, take us towards the end here? Yeah, I think the focus for borrowers right now uh, is to primarily ensure that they don't fall for any scams. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they are paying attention to the fact that there's a payment pause so you don't have to be paying your student debt. For federal loans specifically. For right? federal loans. Unfortunately, pri- for federal us, loans. With, us folks with private loans are still screwed. 
private loans, unfortunately, were not something that was included. Excuse me, mm -hmm. that was not something that was included. But uh, the for the longer term uh, outlook here, it would be a renewed pu push. Ideally, once we get the Supreme Court to decide, uh, a renewed push on more debt cancellation mm -hmm. because there's still a lot of like millions of borrowers that have over 20k. Uh, so that's one side of the push. The other one is to handle interest and to uh, to have a conversation about interest, do something there legislatively or through executive action, and to make college more affordable and hospitable once you're there. So one of our big pushes this spring will be mental health um, on college campuses. Mm. Uh, it's going to be one like to actually be affordable and accessible and mm -hmm. something that a lot with people with the proper training to ensure that when people go there, they don't get re-victimized or have to go through a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. care. So that's one of the major ones because we we have to push for the, both, both of the, those things at once. Mm -hmm. There's still people on campuses that are, that are taking out loans, that are living with those conditions, that are housing insecure. So we're going to focus uh, on the loans and the, the structures of the loans, but we're also going to structure, we're also going to focus on access and affordability and hospitability of being on a college campus. Mm. Uh, so we're going to be focusing on those uh, at the federal and at the state level. Stunning. Yeah, I, that sounds like such a necessary, because essentially you're addressing the root, but also not ignoring some of the symptomatic pieces that can come with that or that are that can interplay with that as, as extensively, you know, because it's not uncommon for students on college campuses to have a six to eight week wait time to get an appointment, even though their tuition dollars cover a certain number of appointments. So that's that's really good to hear. And also something that I feel like we should put a pin in and chat about uh, uh, sometime in the spring. That would be a really nice follow up and bookend to where are we now. Um, amazing. All right, dear friend. Um, is there anything else that you feel like you need to add for the good of this conversation? In follow moment? us uh, <laughs> uh, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. TikTok. Uh, Look at you. Yeah, we're trying. I mean, um, but otherwise, yeah, you can find me there. Uh, I'm tagged, uh, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick.